0: Father, we, uh, we just heard those words sung, the mystery of grace. I pray that for those in the sanctuary who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and have come to put the full weight of their hope in Your Son and all that He's done, would see it as a mystery. A mystery that that we were in such circumstances and such places and called to trust Christ in ways that others aren't, Father. It's a mystery. It's a mystery why we're here today and millions upon millions of people have never even heard the name of Christ. Sometimes Satan wants to use that in people's life to say, and bring confusion. But I pray we would turn it this morning. We would turn it in our lives and, and have gratitude well up within us, Lord, that, that by Your grace we have heard the message of Christ. We would see it as Your mercy toward us, Lord. Pure mercy. Lord, I just pray You'll help us as we look at the Scripture this morning. Open it up to us and strengthen our hearts with it. In Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at Paul's pastoral heart in Philippians, and we're back there again this morning, and we'll finish that up through the summer months as we're here. But as we've looked at his heart, I hope we've really begun to, to, to think about his passion for people and that whole idea that is in the book of Philippians that Paul's desire is that Christ would be magnified That Christ would be seen by His life as He really is so that people would progress in the joy of their faith. I hope we are seeing that this life of faith is to be a progression and a progression in joy, a deep-seated joy in our hearts as we come to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul certainly knew the dangers that lurk out there to take away that joy and to take away that progress and to to cause upheaval in the lives of of the church. He he said in one place, after he had given a litany of all the things he'd suffered in the book of Corinthians, he talks about being beaten, about being shipwrecked, about being hungry, about being cold. And he lists all of those things and all the things that happened to him. And then he says, On top of this, on top of this, I have the pressure of all of the churches. Paul had a pastoral heart. His greatest, his greatest pressure was not shipwreck and cold and abandonness. His greatest pressure was how, how much he desired that the church would not be led astray, would be strengthened in the progress and joy of their faith. Here in this passage now, we see his heart again. I want you to go to verse 17 of chapter 3 and listen to what Paul writes and look at the circumstance and the context of what he's writing here where he says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Paul is weeping as he writes these words. Many, even with tears I tell you this, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul's deepest desire as a pastor was that the people would stand firm and they would progress in the joy of their faith. That's why he wrote Philippians. That's why he wrote to the Philippians. And he agonized about people coming in and snatching away that joy. This morning I say to you, um, it is so important that you get what he's talking about. When, if you think I'm making it up and you've come in in the middle of this, if you go back to verse 25 of chapter 1, it says this. He says, but to remain. Paul talks about remaining. Not dying, but living. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's how Paul saw the Christian life. Not a flippant, trite joy, but a a deep, settled, soul-strengthening joy. If, If that is a foreign concept to you this morning, I would love to visit with you. I would love to visit with you about what Paul meant here. Because that's what Paul meant the Christian life to look like. If it's a burden, if it's something that you kind of wished you'd never even come in contact with, but you know enough to not run away from it. You've got something wrong. That's not the way it ought to be. It doesn't mean it's all easy. It doesn't mean there aren't difficulties that come into our life. But the Christian life was never intended to be that way. Paul talked about joy. A joy that brings strength even in the most severe circumstances. That's what the Christian life is about. And as we see Him properly, that's what begins to happen in our lives. And so Paul agonized that these people would not be led astray. There were two groups that were coming to them and were causing havoc here that Paul was right. We don't know for sure which ones he's describing when he says that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We don't know for sure. But one group that was disrupting the Philippian church were the Judaizers. The Judaizers were the Jewish Christians. who Those who had... had placed their faith in Christ, but they added things to it. And maybe to say Jewish-Christian is the wrong term because here it says their end is destruction. And that is not the end for Christians. But those who had had embraced a form of Christianity is a better way to say it. But they, they couldn't break away from their Jewish heritage enough to really trust the grace of God and the grace of Christ. They still were resting for their salvation in what they were doing and fulfilling the Jewish uh, laws and regulations. They couldn't separate the two. And so really, it had to be a miserable experience for them. But in a sense, they were not Christians. They were Judaizers. They really had not embraced the Gospel. And they were in a perilous condition. That was one group that were... Disrupting that would come in, and Paul was fearful that he might they might disrupt the Philippian church. There, there are Judaizers all over the place today. All over the place that have the label of Christianity, but it is about doing. It is about what we do to merit. It has to do with merit. It doesn't have to do with the grace of God. The second group that was there were the were the the ones that that eventually would become known as gnostics they weren't known yet but that's where gnosticism came from and they were the greeks they weren't the jews but they were the greeks who had embraced a form of christianity but it was a distorted form of christianity and the form of christianity they had was the kind of christianity that the spiritual is all good and the and the body is all bad and so they just said have spiritual experiences don't worry about what goes on in the body because that's going to pass away and it doesn't matter what you do in the body as long as you have a spiritual experience. That's really what they believed. And so they could have all kinds of spiritual experiences and live in all kinds of debauchery in their body and feel like they were they were on their way to heaven. They participated in all kinds of immorality in their body because they felt like the body was going to pass away. Even in this passage, we're not going to go into it here fully today, but Even here, that's why Paul says this, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform what? Our lowly body to be like his glorious body. They had it wrong. The body was not going to pass away, but it was going to be resurrected and it was going to be a body like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they were wrong. They had a distortion, but they were leading people astray. They were causing people to not get the gospel straight, and they were causing all kinds of havoc. And Paul agonized, agonized. He wept, literally wept as he wrote these words, that, that would not; those two elements would not get a hold of these Philippians because he knew where it would take them. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to say to you and warn you, about what those kinds of things look like out there. Because we have modern-day Judaizers. We have modern-day Gnostics today. And the same dangers that lurk for the Philippians lurk for you. And so how can we be careful that we don't succumb to them, that we don't get taken in by them? Because the Bible says the end is destruction. So how do we keep the church From getting taken in by these groups of people. I think the best way is to kind of give you a picture of what they look like. What does it look like? Whether it's Judaizers or Gnostics or some other form of of heresy. Whatever it is. There are some central characteristics of people who are in those kinds of things. And here's what Paul describes it. It's it's in this portion of scripture where he says in verse uh, verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That section right there is a description and how you can recognize people who might lead you astray and who you need to be careful about. We need to be discerning. If ever there was an age... When we needed to be discerning, it is today. Because the essence of what they do is they distort the cross of Christ. They distort the gospel. The scripture says, Paul says, I have tears because these people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But the interesting thing about these people is they don't realize that. And in fact, one of the characteristics of these people is they're very sincere. They think they're doing the right thing. They are very convincing sometimes. Very convincing. They didn't know they were leading them astray. They thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were teaching the right things. Now there's certainly some people probably in those groups who had, had uh, wanted power and that kind of thing. But for the most part, they were, they were sincerely deceived. That's the most dangerous people out there. It's the ones who are sincerely deceived. And the world is full of people like that. We kind of have this mentality, if, and sometimes it creeps into the church, if you're just sincere, that God will see the heart. But you see, that that's not the case. These people were sincere. They were sincerely wrong. And the second thing about that is they were full of passion. They were passionate about what they sincerely believed, even though it's wrong. We need to be wary. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can get into situations and succumb to the passion of the moment. I don't mean illicit sexual passion of the moment. I'm just talking about somebody who stands up there and is exhorting us and they're passionate about it and they really believe it. And we just are longing to follow somebody who really believes what they believe. Be careful. People can really believe what they believe all the way to destruction. The issue is not passion. The issue is not sincerity. The issue is truth. Truth. We need to know the gospel. If you think that you're not vulnerable... If you're spending little time in this book, you're deceiving yourself. You need to know the gospel. You need to know what the cross of Christ is about. And if you're just playing around with the scripture, if you're just playing with it, you are incredibly vulnerable. Because there are people much smarter than you and I who will twist it and distort it and make it sound like it's true because of their sincerity and because of their passion alone. But it is not according to sincerity and passion. It is according to truth. We need to know the truth. You see, Paul felt this burden greatly because they didn't have the Scriptures. I mean, they had letters that were being distributed who ultimately became the Scriptures. But Paul was writing these letters that ultimately God in His sovereignty preserved as the Scriptures. But they didn't have a book like this. We have a book. But do we avail ourselves to the book? Do we avail ourselves to this? Do we really get ourselves in the place where we understand this Gospel? This morning when I was reading that litany of things as we sang that song, um, this morning the hymn, the glories of our God. I hope the glories of your God is always tied to Scripture. I'm not talking about just experiences with God. Certainly those are wonderful things, the glories of God. But the most glorious thing about our God is His revealed truth. If, if you only rest on experience, if you only rest on what God did in your life, but it has no attachment to Scripture, you are incredibly vulnerable. Because even these people who have, sincere and have sincerity and have passion can, can produce experiences. Things can be counterfeited. You have to tie yourself to the Scripture. And I pray that we are so full of Scripture when we come on Sunday mornings that Scripture comes to our mind when we think about the glories of our God. Scripture, like those who know my name, will trust in me. The Scripture is what's got to fill our hearts and our lives. Don't be led astray by sincerity and passion. The second thing about them is that they had convincing arguments. You find that in, uh, in verse 19 there. It's all right there. But it says their minds are set on earthly things. I think what it means here is their mind was set. They had they had a humanistic way of thinking that makes sense. It's just wrong. I mean, there are logical ways of thinking, philosophical, logical ways of thinking that seem to make sense to the human person, to us, but they're just wrong. They're not truth. They may seem like truth. They may have the feel of truth but ultimately they're not they're they're human thinking and by human ways it's it's the kind of thing in in mark chapter 8 if you turn there to peter remember peter around jesus this is this is the kind of an illustration of that peter is around jesus jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection listen to the story it says and he began to teach them jesus that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Again he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You get the picture? Jesus is talking about death, making Peter real uncomfortable. And so Peter takes Jesus aside because it's not a very good way of thinking. And Peter is going to correct Jesus. But then in verse 33 it says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's exactly what I think this passage says, mind set on earthly things. It seems reasonable to the mind of man. The things that Peter wanted to tell Jesus seemed reasonable to him, seemed like they were right. Seemed like he was protecting Jesus. But if he'd had his way and protected Jesus, we all would be on our way to destruction. You see how that works? These people have sincerity and they have passion and they have arguments that seem reasonable to us. The problem is they're just flat wrong. Peter was wrong. Jesus used strong language. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. You have your things of man in mind. That's what these teachers have. They, have. they have a wisdom that seems right, but in the end leads to destruction. There's all kinds of wisdom out there that seems pretty good. And in fact, one of, the, one of the sad things that happens oftentimes if you aren't in the Scriptures. If you aren't in the Scriptures as a young person, a high school person, and you go off become a young adult you go off to a university. What oftentimes happens if you haven't steeped yourself here, if you really don't know your Bible very well, you go off to these universities and you sit in these classes and you have some sincere, passionate professors. The kind of people that you want to follow. The kind of people you want to get on their train. And even what they say is, is kind of tickles you. And thrills you a bit. And you think, ah, could this really be true? And before you know it, you're on their train. And you're on your way to destruction. That happens to countless young people. It happens to all of us. We all can be enamored by sincerity and passion. And that's what Paul was saying. I have tears because he saw people being led astray with people who had sincerity and passion and an argument that seemed reasonable but He knew where it led. It led to destruction. That was kind of the argument of the Judaizers. I mean, it just kind of seemed right to, to people as they heard this Judaizer argument. Yes, we need Christ, but why would God just throw out all that He had been about in the Old Testament? Why would He just start over or seem like He starts over? Well, they don't understand. He didn't start over. Those were shadows and types of what was going to come. But they didn't see that, you see. And so the, the mind says, well, we, we, we'll take the best of Judaism and we'll add it to Christianity and we'll be twice as good. But that was man's way of thinking. It wasn't God's. The Gospel was a radical shift and change. And it wasn't according to human thinking. It didn't, didn't make sense totally to people except God opened their eyes to see it. And some of these other arguments did. Their mind was on earthly things. That's why Peter, that's why Peter struggled. That's why he said he took the Lord aside. He wanted to get him, get it right. That's not the way God was going to work. Here's Peter telling God that's not the way God's going to work. You see, and sometimes we, if we're not careful, can get sucked into those kind of arguments. The third thing is, is these people have sincerity. They have passion. Their their thinking seems to be reasonable, although it's leading to destruction. And and then if you you start to get into their lives and you start to get around and you begin to see there's kind of a veiled pride here. Pride is is a real dangerous thing. And wherever you start to see pride rising up someplace, be careful. Be careful if you're following that. Um, Where do I find that? I find that in in the statement that says, they glory in their shame. Paul said, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and they glory in their shame. They glory. To glory means pride. And, And I will tell you that people who like the Judaizers, people like the Gnostics, the present day people like that today, it may seem as they begin to work with them that there's a humility there. But if you start to peel the layers away, there is a veiled pride. And sometimes that pride will just come roaring up out of their lives. But I say to you, if, if you're following something, and at the, in the heart of that you begin to see pride rising up in that, there's, there's a danger there. It is the antithesis of Christianity. Pride is the antithesis of Christianity. In fact, to really understand the Gospel, the more you understand it, the more you understand the Gospel of God's grace, the more it knocks the props out of any kind of pride we can have. Dan sang this morning, the mystery of God's grace. The mystery of God's grace. Charles Wesley said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? How can it be? How can it be? How can it be? Pride is never the direction that true Christianity should take us. Never. Humility is the path. It's the path our Savior took. And wherever you're following somebody who has sincerity... And passion and in that is pride I say to you be careful be very careful it will take you places that it ought not to take you now none of us are perfect nobody's perfect no Christian leader is perfect and so they have to battle those issues but if it's predominant if it's prevalent all through the whatever thing you're in be careful with it because that is not the gospel and one of the things and one of the ways you begin to see it is, is in a critical spirit. I think somebody who is, is uh, prideful, as much as they may veil it, as much as they may try to cover it, as much as they may try to hide it, one of the things that begins to crop up in that kind of an environment is a critical spirit. And that critical spirit comes from the fact that they think they've got it and somebody else doesn't. And they got it because they earned it. The, the Judaizers were full of pride. They were full of pride in their performance. And they believed that God was on their side because of their performance. And you see, that that creates a, a has and a have not kind of mentality. And whenever you have a have and a have not mentality, criticalness rises up in that because you think you're better. You think you deserve it more. Again, it's the antithesis of the Gospel. The longer we walk with Christ, if you read the great saint's And you read history, the longer they were Christians, the more they were amazed that they were Christians at all. The longer they were Christians, the more they were amazed that they were Christians at all. The more they realized they didn't come to this on their own. That God was working and orchestrating and ultimately opening their eyes and ears to see and to hear the glory of God the face of Christ. So veiled pride, somebody who's full of themselves, or you have a sense that they're full of themselves, I, I, I would say to you, may it cause you to take pause. If you're, if you're following somebody and the teachings of somebody, and there's all kinds of ways and there's all kinds of wonderful things. I have, I have websites. I have people that I follow. I have people that have blogs that I read. And those are good things. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a wonderful resource in the Internet today. Certainly there can be some real dangers lurking there. But I would say to you, if you have somebody who's influential in your life, an influential teacher, but you're sensing in them, though you like a lot of what they're saying, there's a, a sense of pride rising up that makes you uncomfortable. They make statements that kind of set you on edge sometimes and you wonder. Be careful. Take pause. doesn't mean... They're all wrong. Maybe they're struggling and working through that. But if you continue to see it, run away from it. It is not Christianity. And then number four, um, there's a struggle with sensuality. Look Look at the statement there. It says, their God is their belly. First of all, it starts out, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. What does he mean by that? What is it about false teachers or those that would distort the truth? About about their God. Now it's a small G. There is their belly. In essence, what he's saying is they don't have the true God. They're not following the true God. The God they're following is is not the true God. And one of the ways you begin to see that is in in the area of sensuality. Um, they're they've got some places in their life that in the area of sensuality in the in the area of giving in to to their cravings. There's something that makes you uncomfortable in that. Now, let me explain that. What can happen sometimes as you see people, they may get one area of their life under control. I mean, totally under control. In other words, they're able by their own willpower to, to live in a certain way. But if they're not doing that by the power of the gospel, if they're doing it in their own strength, it's a suppression kind of thing. And so if you suppress it here and you get control here, all of a sudden it, it bubbles up over here. It bubbles up over there. And there are people who have strict lifestyles. Strict lifestyles of the way they live. Um, but they're not doing it in the power of the gospel. Now there's, there's a place for convictions. There's a place for us to live out our convictions in the power of the gospel. But these people are not doing it in that power. They're doing it in their own strength, in the arm of the flesh. And you can only do that so long, and all of a sudden eruptions begin to come up. Or maybe they have huge blind spots in their life. Um, one of the things that I remember back when I first became a Christian, there was a segment of, of Christians who, if you if you looked at them, you, uh, you realized they were very careful about the area of sensuality as far as as dress and those kinds of things, um, and and they were incredibly careful about that to extreme flesh, try to do it in their own strength. God brings things to bear to show them that they can 't do that, and it pops up. Um, I remember televangelists who who were very rigid uh, years ago. I mean I'm, if you heard them speak uh, and you heard them preach, I mean they would they would sweat profusely and and, and scream, literally scream on the television about the evils of certain things. And then all of a sudden, the headlines are that gross immorality is going on in their life. And you think, how in the world can those two things match? Well, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what was breaking Paul's heart. He's saying with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Sensuality is rampant oftentimes. So if you sense that, you have to be careful. And then finally, this is the end. This is the sad part of that. The end is destruction. They're not true believers. They will be lost if they persist. They will be lost. The end is destruction. It may look good, but something doesn't smell quite right in all of these areas. So I challenge you this morning, be careful. Be careful in this world we live in today, in all of those areas. And then as we close this morning, the stakes are high. Stakes are incredibly high in this whole thing Um, because here's what Paul says. Look, Look back with me. In Philippians, he says these words, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Um, Paul was saying, Be careful. Be careful of all this other stuff we've just talked about. Walk as we walk. Now, the question is, How did Paul walk? What's the contrast? What's the other side, the flip side of what I've just told you? I think Philippians 3 is full of it. A couple of places, I would say. This is what Paul is saying. This is what what you ought to say. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But how do you know people are true? How do you know they're not leading you astray? There are some things that bubble up in the lives of true followers of Christ. In verse 2, here's what he says of chapter 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. That's the ones he was weeping about, the ones whose end was destruction. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Here he's talking specifically to Judaizers. But then he says this. Remember when we talked about this? For we are the real circumcision. In other words, this is the true church. That's the false one. That's the one that will lead you to destruction if you jump on their bandwagon. This is the true one. And this is what it looks like. This is the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. First part, worship by Christ Jesus. That's a little harder to describe fully, although we can describe it. But the next two are pretty plain. Who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, follow our example. Follow the example of us who glory in Christ, who talk much about Christ, who talk much about the cross, who talk much about the Gospel, who know that our only, our only hope is the Gospel. And it's the mystery that God has revealed it to us, that He's opened our eyes and opened our ears to see it and to hear it. And we put no confidence in the flesh. You see, there's an absence of pride. Confidence in the flesh fuels pride. So He's talking about those who humbly glory in in Christ Jesus. That any attainment they make in this Christian life, any advancement they make in the kingdom always goes back to Christ and what He's doing and what He's done. A little farther down, Paul says it a little differently in verse 10. He says, this is what he wanted to know, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Another dimension of that is that we know the power of His resurrection. That it's His power within us, the Holy Spirit living in us that empowers us to live out this Christian life. And, and this whole issue of suffering. We realize that we follow one who had no place to lay His head. That's, that's who we follow. We follow one who had no home. That kind of spirit, that kind of attitude. That's what Paul says. Follow my example. Don't be led astray. Don't be sucked into the sincerity and passion. But follow this. This morning I say to you, I hope that's where you reside and who you listen to. Those who glory in Christ, put no confidence in the flesh and live in the power of His resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, I pray You'll help us. There's all kinds of dangers lurking for the church. There's all kinds of people who would rise up and say, listen to me, follow me. Certainly teaching is a part of the church, Father. You raise up teachers. But Lord, help us to be careful. Help us to be discerning. Help us to know our Bibles. Help us not to just be carried away because somebody is sincere and passionate. Lord, help us to be people of the truth. And that truth centers in glorying in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh and living by the power of the resurrected Christ within us. Lord, help us to be that kind of people.